Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to the new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. I'm Samantha Lom, one of the hosts of this channel. And today we're talking to David Brandenberger about his new edited volume, Stalin's Master Narrative, a critical edition of the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Bolsheviks, the short course. So David, thank you for being here. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'd be pleased to. Uh, first, though, I'd really like to express my gratitude to you and to Marshall Poe and to the New Books Network for hosting this interview. I'm a big fan of the New Books Network, and this is actually the second podcast I've done with NBN. I talked to Marshall maybe way back in 2012 about an earlier book, and I've listened ever since. So this is a neat opportunity, and I appreciate it. Uh, background. So I grew up in an academic family in the Midwest, in provincial America. I actually come from the district in Wisconsin that elected the notorious red-baiting anti-communist Joe McCarthy to Congress in 1947. And I guess for that reason, uh, I can't really claim that my interest in Russian history and culture were initially piqued by Dostoevsky and Tolstoy so much as it was probably the Cold War, Ian Fleming's James Bond, and I guess Ronald Reagan that initially drew me to Russia and things Russian. Um, in that vein, I think probably the first moment of mature political commentary that I ever can claim to make was in 1983 after Reagan's evil empire speech. And I announced sort of precociously to my father that I thought evil empire was a strange term. It wasn't very analytical. I also thought it was inflammatory and wasn't going to contribute to mutual understanding or the easing of international tensions, but it really did catch my eye and ear. And my father sort of baiting me uh, with my adolescent leftist sympathies encouraged me to start learning Russian at the college where he taught physics. And so I started in 86 or 87, and then I continued when I uh, went to McAllister College where I majored in history and Soviet East European studies. I continued with the Russian. I did my study abroad in Moscow in 1991. And then I returned to Moscow after college to teach for a year in 92, 93. And there 
while I was sort of immersed in things Russian, I applied to PhD programs in the States. I entered Harvard in 93. I did my PhD research for about 15 months in 96, 97. Graduated in 99. And then I did a postdoc at Harvard and a three-year lectureship before uh, taking a job at the University of Richmond, where I still am today. So I, I'm now, I guess, a, I'm a professor now here. I'm also an affiliated researcher at the National Research University Higher School of Economics in Moscow. Well, I wasn't even alive in 1983, so that's kind of... <laughs> uh, you got a big head start on me, is all well, I can say. I was, I was interested, of course, and, and uh, completely engaged to be in Moscow in 91. This was right after the coup, uh, during some of the most difficult times of the socialist economy, uh, but also just absolutely interesting to watch everything transform on the ground between... August and December of, of 91 and literally watched the Soviet Union collapse. Were you there when they were shelling the uh, Biele Dom? That was 93. And so that was my first year in grad school. So I was ensconced in, in uh, Cambridge, but watching it on TV, CNN. Well, the, you know, from a retrospective point of view, it may have been interesting to be there, but mm -hmm. also not getting shot is, you know, high on my list of things to do in life. So, yeah, that's, yeah. A good, that's a good thing to prioritize, I think. So let's go to the short course, which is mm -hmm. a little bit less interesting than you know, urban tank warfare. Mm -hmm. um, would you mind telling our listeners what exactly is the short course and why it merits an in-depth study? Yeah, that's a great place to begin. Uh, even before that, though, I'd really like to give a shout out to my uh, uh, co-author and collaborator on this project, Mikhail Zelenov, who's my co-editor and uh, longtime uh, partner in crime. Uh, Mikhail works at the uh, archive, uh, former Central Party Archive in Moscow, Rogaspi, where he uh, helps run the publications department. And I can simply say that were it not for Mikhail, this project never would have come to pass. So it's, it's exciting for me to be able to represent it uh, on NBN today for us both. So the, what is the project? The project is called Stalin's Master Narrative, as you said before. And it's a critical edition of the 1938 short course on Bolshevik Party history. This is a Stalin-era textbook that was designed for mass consumption and indoctrination. It was published anonymously. But it now turns out that uh, we can demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that Stalin not only commissioned the textbook, but he took part in its editing. Uh, like I said, it was released anonymously, but it was printed in the name of a uh, Central Committee commission of the party. And so therefore, it became the centerpiece of Bolshevik uh, ideology and the Bolshevik canon immediately upon its um, publication in September of 1938. After 38, the short course remained at the center of party ideology and propaganda until 1956, when Nikita Khrushchev denounced it at the center of his uh, secret speech at the 20th Party Congress. Um, and so even though, but even though the uh, short course was withdrawn from circulation in 1956, its circulation between 38 and 56, it allowed around 40 million copies of the book to be published in, in at least a dozen languages. This means that the short course was one of the most widely published books of the 20th century, maybe uh, 
only being out published by Mao's Little Red Book, the Bible, and I guess Harry Potter. Um, as immodest as it sounds, though, I think it's no exaggeration to say, therefore, that the, the short course is Stalin's master narrative. Uh, it scripted not only party indoctrination and propaganda, but it also scripted depictions of Soviet history and mass culture and theater, film. Uh, even in the display cases of the country's museums, it scripted um, party history. Uh, during the post-war period, the short course also served as a script or a blueprint uh, for building socialist societies abroad, first in the People's Democracies of Eastern Europe and then in the People's Republic of China after '49. And even if, I guess, the short course was, re was removed from circulation in 1956, it still enjoyed a, a, a long afterlife after that, uh, even when it had ceased to grace the library shelves and party syllabi of the country, the short course uh, structured Bolshevik and state history uh, up through the Gorbachev period, sort of uh, obliquely through other texts. Uh, and outside the USSR, the short course continued to shape party and state building, uh, chiefly in East Asia and principally in the People's Republic of China up, up into the uh, 1970s. I guess the last thing that I would say about the short course, though, in terms of its big impact, is that uh, outside the communist bloc, the short course also had an afterlife, uh, playing a central role in many critiques of Stalin and Stalinism. Even today, you can think about the short course as being a symbol of dogmatism and closed-minded orthodoxy, both in academic circles and in sort of politically left circles as well. So all in all, the short course, I think, might be uh, perhaps the single most important book for the study of Stalinism so far published. Uh, and if that's true, then as author of the short course, Stalin uh, becomes, if not maybe the father of the Soviet peoples or the genius of humankind, he certainly becomes one of the most important Russian historians of the 20th century. So let's talk about the writing process, because my work, you know, my first book deals with the Constitution, which is another mm -hmm. writing project formulating Absolutely. the master plan that Stalin is intimately involved with. Right. And that was done largely in committee. And then Stalin is the editor with the final say on a lot of drafts. Mm -hmm. Is that how that worked in the short course as well, that they divide up sections to certain people? Can you tell from the archives who wrote what? Oh, you, can defi you, you definitely can tell. Yeah. yeah what edits Stalin himself actually made? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's all absolutely clear. Every single thing was kept that could be kept. Stalin probably destroyed some of his own drafts, but nobody else would just dare do that. So the whole thing, the whole thing goes back to the late 1920s when the party leadership expressed some frustration with the lack of an official single endorsed party line on history. And Stalin himself becomes very vocal about this crisis in party ideology and indoctrination in 1931 when he writes a letter to Proletarskaya Revolutia, in which he complains about the scholastic nature of party history and calls for a much more approachable uh, sort of catechism for mass indoctrination and mobilization. This is what the American historian Commager calls a usable past. So Stalin asks in 1931 for a usable past. He, he sort of puts this on the uh, agenda for party historians, but it takes six years for even the leading court historians of, of Stalin's inner circle to develop even a minimally uh, acceptable draft. These historians, I guess, first and foremost are Yaroslavsky and Pospielov. They had 
a uh, a small research team which grew so to larger East proportions. Part? Well, no, Ispart is done at that point. This is the Institute of Marxism-Leninism okay. in Moscow, and uh, the the, uh, the so Yaroslavsky and Pospielov headed up the team, but uh, their researchers were known as a, as a sort of a, a kalhoz of, of researchers, a small collective farm of researchers who would do the dirty work and, and, and gather documents for them. Yaroslavsky and Pospilov would then write, and they wrote uh, almost singularly between uh, April of 37 and April of 38, whereupon they delivered a draft to Stalin. Stalin had looked at the drafts in, uh, in four stages, between 37 and 38. But when they finally deliver him the uh, um, galleys of, of the prototype short course in April of 38, uh, he takes a careful look at it in May uh, of 38 and rejects the draft at that point, and announcing that it wasn't satisfactory. Uh, on the other hand, he refused to return the draft to Yaroslavsky and Pospielov for further editing. And uh, thereafter, Stalin retired to his dacha several times over the course of the summer of 1938 and rewrote it himself. So we actually have a lot of the paper trail from Stalin's editing process uh, covered in his handwriting, Mm -hmm. uh, in which he attempts to do not only line editing, but also restructure some of the arguments uh, in specific chapters of the text. Yeah, I got that for the Constitution. It was great. You could see the changes he made over time in his little green crayon. That's right. How'd you like his handwriting? Um, I could have kissed the person that transcribed it oh, into really? typewriter. Uh, well, my Russian wasn't that great at the time, and handwriting in general is sort of difficult. Typewritten Russian was just so much easier, and I could have gone back in a time machine and kissed whoever that was. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, this is, I mean, he had, I'm sure you noticed this yourself, that he he tends to write diagonally across printed pages in yes. terrible handwriting. So this is where uh, Mikhail and I spent long hours sort of side by side, either in the reading room at Rogaspi or in his kitchen uh, in Moscow, just trying to figure out what was written what this scribble meant. And uh, this is, again, huge credit to Zelenov for really understanding this handwriting and making a project possible that probably would not have been possible had I been doing it alone. Doesn't it make you feel better, though, when the Russians have trouble with it, too? You're like, oh, thank (laughs) God, it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I can agree with you. I can definitely agree with you there. So was there any sort of conflict within the party leadership itself over how the short course was to be written? Because I do see this with the Constitution. The main draft is done by Yakovlev, Stitsky, and Tal, Mm -hmm. and they have a much more ideological version, and Stalin cuts out a lot of the ideology, Mm -hmm. partially because it is designed probably more for legislative initiative or just not really appropriate for a constitution, but there does appear to be a real back and forth. And in some cases, they get their bits put back in, usually in a different section, but there does appear to be a real negotiation. Is there a similar negotiation with the short course, or is it mostly Stalin himself and the other party leadership are not involved? That's a good question. So Stetsky curates this project as well until he's purged. Uh, but, uh, let me see if I can't give you sort of the grand picture, the, the macro picture, and then maybe it's worth, it would be worthwhile talking about some specific cases. Uh, so in the grand scheme of things, 
uh, Yaroslavsky and Pospielov thought that they were being commissioned to write a history of the party in which the struggle with the opposition forms the red thread of of the whole narrative. Okay, and can so, you tell our <laughs> listeners which opposition you mean? Oh, sure, absolutely. So the party the party found itself struggling for ideological purity and and orthodoxy against a variety of oppositionists. This would be. Uh, fellow socialists like the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries. It also included the internal party opposition, which might be on the, the left among the Trotskyites and Zinoviavites, on the right among the Rikovites and Bukharanites. It also might include the workers' opposition. It also might include uh, various forms of national communism among Belarusians, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, and so on and so forth. So the party uh, circa 1937 the party leadership believed its, its, its historical narrative to be composed of and defined by this struggle for purity uh, against all of these various deviationists. And so uh, that was the red thread that Yaroslavsky and Pospielov inserted into the text. They built the text around this narrative. And Stalin, of course, approved it in April of 37. So what did they deliver in April 38? They delivered to Stalin a prototype text. It, which claimed that the party was the only truly Marxist party in the world. It was the only true party of the worker-peasant masses. Party history itself was a history of the Bolshevik struggle with the opposition. Uh, it was an opposition that was composed of oppositionists, both inside and outside of party ranks. And the Bolsheviks had prevailed only because of their ferocious struggle and only because Lenin and Stalin understood how to work with the masses, et cetera, et cetera. So Stalin gets this uh, rather paranoid, claustrophobic text uh, in April of 1938, and proceeds to rewrite it. Uh, his own understanding of party history and uh, the mobilizational uses of party history had changed quite a bit between April of 37 and April of 38. And so now when he rewrote, when he rewrites the text in the summer of 1938, he chooses to highlight different things. He highlights the vanguard nature of the party itself and reduces the uh, importance of the worker-peasant masses. Stalin also is less committed in the summer of 1938 to the whole idea of the struggle with the opposition. The purges are winding down after all. Uh, and so he downgrades the idea of the struggle with the opposition in deference to a new thesis, which he really wants to foreground. It's something that he's talked about since 1925, but really foregrounds it in the text here, which is uh, the task of building socialism in one country and unifying uh, Soviet society. And so uh, in order to stress this idea of the vanguard and the construction of a socialist society, uh, Stalin even reduces his own role in the narrative and the process in order to build a more institutional history of the party uh, and uh, reassign agency either to the party hierarchy and the central party apparatus and Lenin uh, or to um, and try and talk about the grander dynamics of party history. So it's a, it's a huge shift when you think about it. It's a huge shift, not maybe ideologically speaking, but a shift in the red thread from this paranoid struggle with the opposition to a somewhat more optimistic uh, story of, of uh, a building of a socialist society. So how does this fit in with the idea of cult of personality? Because generally the idea of the cult of personality is that Stalin wants to make himself the great leader of Leaky Voigt. Mm -hmm. So downgrading his own role seems to be sort of doing the opposite. How do you rectify the t or reconcile the two? 
Well, this is a big question, and this is one of the reasons why, um, I, at least in Zilnoff and, and, and my uh, opinion, the text has been so misunderstood over the years. Khrushchev launches his critique of the short course in '56 by saying that um, that the uh, um, short course was designed to exaggerate Stalin's role in party history, and that the short course is a hallmark of the of the court uh, of the cult of personality. Uh, and, it, and many people accepted that definition that Khrushchev provided uh, and the critique because it conformed to sort of popular expectations and understandings of the egotistical excesses of the short of, of the uh, uh, personality cult. I think that one could say that Yaroslavsky and Pospialov's original prototype of the short course that lands on Stalin's desk in April of 38 is indeed what Khrushchev was describing. It's a characterization of party history that orients around Stalin almost exclusively. It's a, it's a personality cult project. It attributes a huge amount of historical agency to the general secretary. In fact, in, in this uh, draft that Yaroslavsky and Pospialov write, um, particularly after Lenin's death in 1924, the general secretary, Stalin, is credited with almost everything of any significance in party history. That said, when, this, when Stalin turns to vetting the short course in the summer of 1938, he appears to have objected to the centrality of his biography within the text. Uh, the evidence suggests that Stalin regarded his personality cult and the cult of Lenin, incidentally, uh, as a necessary evil of sorts. It was sort of a concession uh, or a surrogate uh, for an ill-educated Soviet population that struggled with um, Marxism-Leninism, especially sort of unadulterated uh, Marxist-Leninist theory. It was something that, that much of the society found very difficult to assimilate and understand. And so previous historians had used a lot of the personality cult uh, as a way of... Um, uh, negotiating this educational process, if you will. And Stalin had approved that. He had proved, uh, approved sort of an instrumental use of, the, of, the, of his own biography as a way of, of uh, making party history a little bit easier to understand for uh, people with basically only an elementary school education. Um, in the short course, however, when St Stalin expresses some real frustration over the proliferation of the short course, uh, uh, the proliferation of the uh, personality cult and the sort of single explanatory um, approach that the short course's authors, Pospielov and Yaroslavsky, had taken. Uh, and so Stalin began in his editing process in the summer of 38 to begin reassigning historical agency in the text that had been given to him initially. He reassigns a lot of this historical agency either to Lenin uh, or to the central party apparatus as a whole. And he really elevates, especially this latter institution, at his own expense. Ultimately, uh, Stalin removes so much about himself from the short course that Yaroslavsky and Pospielov dare to write a protest letter to him in August of 38, saying that they thought that he had removed too much of the uh, biography from this party uh, history. But Stalin refused to budge on this issue and argued back that this was not a history of individuals. It was not a biography of himself. It was instead an institutional history of the party and that uh, the, the, the book's readership deserved to have an uh, unadulterated approach uh, given to them 
uh, towards the mastery of Marxism-Leninism, and that was best done through the history of the party, not through the biography of the leader. And so Stalin strips out quite a bit of himself uh, from the text. That's not to say that the uh, personality cult is utterly missing from the short course. It's there. This is a this text is a product of its times. However, the uh, sort of monocausal approach to understanding Bolshevik history that Yaroslavsky and Pospielov had inserted into the text that was really Stalin-centric is replaced by a more complex understanding of historical agency, which gives the party hierarchy, party leadership, and the central party apparatus a lot more uh, role in party history. So how was this different from previous histories? I mean, we've, we've talked about how the drafts had changed over time, but how was this different than, say, earlier party histories produced by East Part or the Marxist-Leninist Institute? Uh, on a, there are a couple of different, a couple of key differences. Uh, first, I think maybe the best way to think about it would be that history writing up until well, let's say history writing between about 1929 and about 1937 had oftentimes focused on individuals. And this is going to give one explanation for why the personality cult. So sort of the great man theory of history. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of thinking about it, actually. And and in this sense, Stalin's personality cult makes sense for sort of products of the mid-1930s. Uh, insofar as you have a number of leading lights of the party who are given a lot of agency in party history, Stalin being the first, perhaps, or Lenin being the first and Stalin being close second, but you have Orjanikidze and Kuibyshev and Molotov and a whole variety of other uh, heroes, including uh, the, I guess, the namesake of, of your town, Kirov, uh, are given a huge amount of, of uh, credit in party history. But then this becomes a lot more complicated during the, the, the purges of, of 36, 37, and 38. Uh, some of the leading lights of the party, like Bukharin and Rikov, are, turn out to be enemies of the people. Uh, others, uh, f- call, are, uh, others uh, play roles which are called into question. Uh, because the purge comes in a variety of waves, it becomes very difficult to produce a new narrative. There's always the suspicion that uh, heroes might be uh, exposed as enemies of the people at some point in the future. And so writing history becomes very difficult, uh, circa 1937-38. And so I think that you see a major shift in the writing of party history at that time when you move to a more schematic institutional approach to writing history, which doesn't rely on heroes and instead relies a lot more on what Stalin calls theory, uh, which we would probably call a, a more schematic or a more institutional approach to party history. And what do they do to specific events that our readers could maybe, or our listeners could maybe understand things like 1917, mm-hmm. the civil war, both of which intimately involved Trotsky, who is in trouble mm-hmm. by 1927. <laughs> uh, speaking of great men who it's interesting to write about at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they deal with these specific events? Right. Well, so the so people like Trotsky, Trotsky will be written out of of party history already earlier than that. Probably the, the many of the central textbooks will uh, have reduced will have reduced Trotsky's role already by 1925. Uh, but but maybe we should think about 1917 for a moment and how it changes. Um, so the so at least in Stalin's understanding of 1917, you see a huge transformation between 
the earliest days of the revolution in 1938. Uh, during the earliest years of the Soviet experiment, maybe circa 1918, 1919, 1920, uh, Stalin uh, espoused a pretty conventionally Leninist view of the revolution in which domestic events were contextualized in their um, uh, within internationalist ideals, and a focus on the party leadership was complemented by grassroots proletarian uh, worker-peasant voluntarism. Uh, perhaps the only really distinctive thing about Stalin's point of view on 1917 and the 1920s uh, was uh, his insistence that nationality be considered an, a key factor in uh, providing revolutionary consciousness. That For Stalin, it was not only class, but it was nationality, which explained the liberationist desires that underscored revolutionary consciousness and the revolution. Is this because so you, he's Georgian or because he was commissar of nationalities at the time? Well, I think he's I think he's both. Since 1913, he had been tasked by the party leadership with uh, sort of being the point man on uh, the national question. And he, he writes a couple of pamphlets and he's he serves as Lenin's advisor on the national question and uh, helps distinguish the Bolsheviks from uh, some of their other uh, socialist rivals. And this is and and you're right, of course, that he's the first commissar of nationalities, and and this is something that the provisional government hadn't done, and the Tsarist government hadn't done. So nationality policy is a really big deal, and 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 Stalin builds it into his understanding of 1917. Yaroslavsky and Pospelov, of course, also build it into their prototype when they uh, write the party history uh, uh, for Stalin in 37. When Stalin turns to editing in 38, though he begins to rethink 1917 pretty seriously uh, and rewrites this narrative along rather dynamic and different lines. He transforms the revolution of the workers of the world into an almost exclusively Russian revolution, realized from above rather than realized from below. So it's much more um, vanguardist, I guess, than a product of worker-peasant voluntarism. Well, and in line with his idea of revolution in one country. I think that's absolutely right as well, that you get a big shift from, of a international context to a national context. And, and uh, uh, the revolutionary dynamics are sui generis and effectively homegrown rather than the product of a, of a, of a world war. You also get Stalin rethinking activism and voluntarism even in the domestic context. And so... If the initial texts in the 20s and, and up through Yaroslavsky and Pospilov had stressed the role of workers, soldiers, peasants, women, youth, non-Russian uh, minorities in the struggle, uh, Stalin begins downgrading all of this as he, as he rewrites the text in 38. Uh, he also removes local party organizations from the struggle uh, and uh, proletarian internationalism. Uh, is shifted to a much more sort of autarkic approach uh, to understanding the revolutionary drive. This global context gives way to the domestic, as we've talked about already, in favor of socialism in one country. So it really, you, you get a, uh, a, even though the um, masthead of Pravda will continue to say workers of the world unite through 1941. Uh, this is a text which is not so much about the workers of the world anymore for 1917. It's much more about uh, a party vanguard leading a worker peasant uh, group of supporters in um, the Russian revolution.
Well, that's interesting because, of course, Trotsky releases his history of the Russian Revolution in 1930, which is very, very different, still very internationalist and basically accuses Stalin of portraying the revolution. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see the two contrast together because Trotsky is still very much a man of you know big heroic figures, again, primarily himself, because, you know, why not? Um but it is very interesting to contrast these these two ideas. How does this fit in with the idea of the popular front, though? Because by 1936, they're, they're pushing towards popular front um, policies through the common turn. So you would think that some emphasis on global solidarity would be important. Indeed. And so the popular front is, of course, as you, you, you absolutely correctly anticipate, the popular front is in uh, Yaroslavsky and Pospelov's version of the short course, as is the Comintern. This is a very important uh, element of, of uh, Bolshevik party history because the Bolsheviks lead this international communist movement through the Comintern. They produce the anti-fascism, which is apparently key. Circa 1937 to uh, holding the line in Europe, uh, holding the line in the Spanish Civil War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you would think that that would make it into the short course. It doesn't. Stalin strikes the Comintern entirely from the short course in 1938, in part probably because uh, the purges were affecting the Comintern hierarchy, absolutely decimating the Comintern hierarchy. Uh, and there is some research out there suggesting that a fourth show trial was proposed of Comintern executives for the fall of 1938, a show trial that was never held. But in any case, Stalin, for whatever reason, decides to remove the Comintern completely from Bolshevik history. So he strikes out entire subsections of a couple of key chapters. It's hard to find any mention of the Comintern whatsoever in the text that he finishes. He also removes the popular front completely. Uh, and that's a little bit harder to understand. But I think that in the summer of 1938, Stalin was pretty frustrated with um, leftists in Europe. He was seeing, the, he was seeing appeasement uh, as a possibility. He was also anticipating an uh, inter-imperialist war uh, as breaking out in the near future. And so this is, it's a very insular text that he finishes editing and releases in September of 1938. It's a text that, that leaves out a lot of that internationalism that you've just been mentioning uh, in really dramatic terms. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Was it not intended for an international audience? Because it certainly is produced eventually for an international audience in multiple mm -hmm. languages. Well, and, and so indeed, yeah, you pick up on another really interesting point that despite the fact that Stalin removes the... The, the Comintern from the text itself, he expects the Comintern to help distribute the text abroad. And so the text is printed in many foreign languages. Uh, it's pr printed in, in 12 uh, Soviet languages, uh, non-Russian Soviet languages, but also uh, the better part of a dozen foreign languages. Many of those initial printings are done in Moscow, but then you have printings 
issued in, in London and Paris and New York and San Francisco and Beijing and Delhi. Uh, and so it, this text actually does circulate broadly uh, in, in outside of the Soviet Union. Communist movements abroad uh, try to use the text. They overlook, I guess, or, or pretend not to notice how little a role is given to the Comintern. And they use the text as an instruction manual for how to think about the revolutionary process. And so this is where you get a lot of the uh, Leninist structuring of, of revolutionary movements abroad, which are vanguardist and, and t- take advantage both of worker and peasant participation, but as a subordinate to the party. Um, in, co- in, par- in countries after World War II, where uh, communists are already in power, uh, the short course is used as as a um, sort of a blueprint for how to make the transition to a state-led economy and the collectivization of agriculture. Um, it's abandoned in 1956 as this sort of blueprint in Eastern Europe, but will main will remain on on um, uh, reading lists uh, in communist education and in economic planning in China until 1970. So it's that's quite a long-lasting impact. Uh, but that's in some senses that you've, you've hit upon sort of one of the big paradoxes of this text is redesigned as an autarkic uh, top down narrative by Stalin for domestic consumption, but nevertheless is used abroad with a lot with with quite remarkable frequency until um, the mid 1950s, at, at least. And then in the PRC until the 70s. So was the date and um, you know, the year it was put out? Strategic. I always sort of assumed that it was designed to sort of strengthen uh, attention and um, you know, unite people to the anti-fascist cause because it's released in in thirty eight. Uh, but if you edit out everything about non-Russian people being involved in the revolution, that seems counterintuitive. Was there any specific reason that it was put out when it was, or is that just when it was finished? Oh, uh, yeah, of course, it's the latter. Uh, it was expected to be released in the fall of 37 and was delayed and delayed and delayed as Stalin had to work on it and asked first Yaroslavsky and Pospielov to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And then after he took the process over and and uh, redeveloped the text himself, uh, that cost the process an entire year. So 37, 37 was the target date and 38 was the date of realization. It's, it comes out at a very peculiar time, though, because it, it comes out um, just on the eve of the agreement at Munich. So Stalin is unaware that appeasement will take its, the form that it takes at Munich in 1938. Instead, what Stalin predicts in the late chapters is not so much... Uh, some sort of an international movement to resist fascism. In fact, he sort of reduces the agency given to grassroots activists in in, uh, Germany, France, Britain, Spain uh, in the text. What he's anticipating in the latter chapters of the text is a um, inter-imperialist war, something that he refers to as the second imperialist war, which he says has already begun in 1938 because he's probably expecting the Nazis to invade Czechoslovakia rather than to come to the agreement at Munich. And he expects Britain, France, and Germany to come to blows, uh, to become engaged with the United States in some sort of large inter- internationalist war. The, this was also expected to 
affect uh, the Asian theater with Japan's interventions in China, maybe a clash between Japan and the United States. And what he expected was that the USSR would be able to sit out this conflict. Uh, his, uh, the, the Yaroslavsky and Pospilov had, had sown the seeds of this, this analytical line in their text, and they had said that the Soviet Union would be attacked imme- imminently and produced a really sort of paranoid vision of the future in which internal um, fifth columns would be uh, a persistent problem even as the USSR was attacked by its enemies from outside. Uh, Stalin reverses this line in thirty-eight and says that the imperialists are going to clash amongst themselves uh, and that the USSR, because of the success of its defense industry and its, pro- its, its program of peace, uh, should be able to stand aside from the co- conflict for at least a period of time. So in some senses, what he offers is comforting and less paranoid and less claustrophobic than what Yaroslavsky and Pospilov write. It's also, of course, not accurate at all, unfortunately, <laughs> for the USSR. Accurate. Absolutely um, not. He, 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 of course, fails to anticipate the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty. He fails to anticipate the annexation of the Baltic states war with Finland. Uh, the, the tail end of the short course is in some senses rather surreal. So that leads me to my, my other question. Who is this written for? Cause it's clearly not written for an international audience if you delete them, but is, you know, you had talked about how earlier historians had put in sort of this great man history so that people had things to understand history by rather than theory, which, in fairness, even if you study it well, Marxist theory is a little bit dense and tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the, the big complaints of the short course, isn't it? That it, it is uh, a history devoid of grand narrative, historic heroes and villain, and it is very dry and ideological. So who was this really aimed at? Mm-hmm. So you've again sort of picked up on one of the big party priorities, which was not fulfilled by this project. When this whole thing was commissioned in April of 1937, the party leadership asked for two textbooks. They asked for one text, which would be written on a basic level for literate grassroots level party members. And then they asked for a more sophisticated text for party executives. And so Yaroslavsky and Pospialov were supposed to do both of these things. And they were given a third uh, uh, member of their editorial brigade to do it, a, a guy from the Comintern named Knorin, uh, Wilhelm Knorin. So Knorin was purged almost immediately in, this, in June of 37. And that threw the whole project into confusion leaving only Yaroslavsky and Pospilov to complete these two books. Yaroslavsky and Pospilov appear to have shelved their idea of writing the more advanced text and instead began developing a, um, the more basic text for mass uh, readership in the USSR. They struggled to do this, though. They, they were professional historians rather than textbook authors and struggled to make a text which was accessible in a truly short course, if you will. Uh, they turn it in in April of 38, thinking that they have probably uh, completed their task. And Yaroslavsky then turns his, his attention to trying to write a more advanced version for more uh, refined and, and uh, literate audiences. Uh, he abandons this project when he hears that Stalin's dissatisfied with what they've managed to already create. 
So the more advanced text is never written. What happens, though, when Stalin turns his uh, attention to the editorial process is to try and adapt what they had written uh, for all sorts of audiences for, I guess, a variety of different party constituencies. So Stalin tries to accomplish this whole task with a single textbook. And so when, when he releases it, the initial press that surrounds the uh, um, release of the short course in September 1938 describes it as a text for all party members to master. When the feedback begins coming back through Agitprop that uh, mass audiences are struggling with the text, then Stalin sort of uh, uh, changes uh, tack and uh, argues that this is first and foremost, again, for party executives. Everybody should maybe take a look at it. It would be useful uh, on all levels, but it's an absolute priority for the more advanced members of, of the uh, uh, party elite rather than for uh, all party members to master. And indeed, we know from um, data that we have uh, from the party study circles and, and uh, other other forms of, of party indoctrination in society that maybe the indeed the party executives at least could understand it on the level of learning it by rote. Uh, many other members of society never quite understood it. They could memorize, I suppose, but had a very hard time identifying with it. Uh, on an emotional level or on a imaginative level, it never really turned into the usable past that had been uh, desired in the first place. It did, of course, get transformed into a variety of other forms, and that's where I guess maybe it had a larger structuring effect on the historical imagination of society, because the party, the, the, this uh, short course, did structure the way that party history was captured in film, in fiction, in theater, and opera and in museum display. And so on that level, maybe the short course's narrative has a more formative, transformative effect on the mass uh, uh, imagination than the and text itself. By structure, do you mean like they broke it into the same chunks of history to deal with? Yes. Or that they presented the similar narrative? What in fact, they'd structure, they, they would structure halls of the museums according to the short course. It was absolutely so by, remarkable. Like, chapter title. Yep. And uh, the same and uh, courses in party history taught at university would be structured according to chapter by chapter. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, the doctrinaire degree to which uh, they even reorganized the Lenin Museum in downtown Moscow to bring it into alignment with the short course. Although if you just do it by chapter title, you don't actually have to read it. Because I have read <laughs> the short course and it is a little bit like watching paint dry it's hard. It, it, it is, yeah, it is not an inspiring text. And there's a incredibly difficult, difficult section of chapter four on dialectical and historical materialism, which acted as a speed bump of sorts for party education courses. It was very, very difficult for students to get past that section because it's so abstract and so sort of arcane in the way that it deals with uh, problem, sort of uh, problems of, of, of uh, Marxism. Uh, and uh, placing that in the middle of chapter four meant that uh, oftentimes chapters five through 12 could barely be addressed uh, in many of these refresher uh, courses on party indoctrination. Certainly there were also problems with the study circles themselves. I mean, I know mm -hmm. this from looking at the Constitution, which is a much easier kind of listicle document. Um, 
uh, that basically a lot of these study circles consisted of a bunch of people sitting around while one guy reads it out loud, says, do you have any questions? If no one says yes, you all get to go home early. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the way that the short course was taught as well, because it's not a text that you can really discuss. In fact, you don't really want to have awkward questions uh, asked about various heroes or people people remembered from from other texts that had previously been in circulation. There are all sorts of awkward things that weren't supposed to be discussed at the same time that you're trying to discuss socialist construction or or the Civil War. And so I think that probably that's the way that uh, party study circles dealt with a short course as well. This was something that was read aloud or it was something that was memorized and it was repeated back to the instructor chapter in verse. This is how people qualified for the next level in party education. But there was no creativity or, or um, critical thinking uh, in, that was encouraged in these sorts of study circles. In fact, in many senses, exactly the opposite. It's much more of a catechism than it is uh, an active living history of the party. So you think it's because the subjects were touchy? Because I, when I look at the Constitution, the subject's not actually that touchy. It just seems like either people didn't really understand how to properly teach, because it's learning by rote and repeating back is something that was part of czarist educational systems and unfortunately still part of the Russian educational system. Drives me batty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in many ways it was simply the way that they were used to learning and it was quick. A lot of these things were, you know, push, push, push campaigns. We have to learn this in two weeks and then, you know, in two weeks from now, there'll be some other thing that will be the thing of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so f- what I see with the constitution is not so much that the, the topic is tricky or no one wants to have a discussion because they actually do make really interesting comments when they do have discussions and some of them are borderline seditious and as far as i can tell no one really gets in that much trouble for it um but it just seems like that this was the most expedient way in the way that they were most familiar with i'd agree with that i'd say it's probably a combination of the two uh, certainly there's this uh sort of shock approach uh shock campaign approach to uh party education which goes hand in hand with exactly what you're describing in regard to the constitutional discussions. Uh, I think that the history of the party had been rewritten frequently enough and had enough um, uh, former heroes now revealed to be enemies of the people that it also uh, was a source of concern on a thematic level. So maybe programming wise, there was too much to cover in too little time. Uh, but then thematically as well, there are all sorts of peculiar questions that poorly trained uh, agitators on the ground level were not qualified to talk about. Why was why what happened to Trotsky? Uh, why was Zinoviev head of the Leningrad Party until he wasn't? Uh, who shot Kirov and why? Uh, there are all sorts of really problematic questions with with answers which. It will just lead to more questions. And I suspect it was an absolute nightmare to try and lead active discussions in, on, on party history just because of the degree to which the uh, agitator can get him or herself in great trouble um, by providing candid answers. Well, I know it was in Soviet history classes that I've taught, Jim, <laughs> just because the text is so bland. Even now, students have a hard time connecting with it. There are none of these 
big events or heroes or actors to really discuss. It's a lot of theory and a lot of, yeah, mostly, mostly theory, um, Mm -hmm. which is really hard even for Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, it it tends to rechannel the classroom experience in a way which makes it more controllable for the uh, instructor, but certainly less creative and less inspiring for the participants. So, it would appear that perhaps this was not very widely read, even though it was widely produced. So what does this tell us, you know, add to this historical understanding of Stalinism if it didn't really resonate with its intended audience? Well, I think so. I think, let's see, there are probably a couple of ways to think about that. Um question. I would say that it was widely read. It was just widely read in a different way. Uh, it was widely read in a, in a, in the sense of a catechism. Uh, and, uh, to that extent, no one had any excuse not to have read it, whether they understood it or not is probably, uh, more, more in doubt. Uh, but they certainly could, many people would be required by merit of where they were working to be able to at least answer back chapter and verse uh, when um, it was time to to demonstrate that level of political knowledge. I guess on a bigger level, um, I think what one could say in terms of what this tells us about Stalinism is... Um, <laughs> It could. It tells us a few things. I guess first of all, it might tell us a little bit about the ossification of this revolutionary myth, uh, a myth which had inspired people for twenty years or twenty-one years by nineteen thirty-eight, but a myth which proved to be very difficult to maintain uh, in the face of the purges, in the face of uh, Stalin's consolidation of power, in the face of uh, the defeats that the revolution had had experienced abroad. Um, the the end result is is a rather ossified history narrative rather than an exciting mobilizational one, uh, and this provides for the need for all sorts of other surrogate forms of of uh, mobilizational uh, imagery, ideology, and propaganda after 1938. So you, at the same time that you see the ossification of party history, you see the increased dynamism afforded to pre-revolutionary history, the revival of Peter the Great, the revival of Alexander Nevsky, the revival of Ivan Ivan the Terrible, uh, as other potential sources of, of um, charisma and authority in this society. So I think maybe that's one. Uh, in regard to Stalinism, I think it also, short course is interesting also in the sense that it tells us a variety of things about Stalin. It tells us that if Stalin didn't necessarily deserve those monikers of the, the great genius of humankind or the best friend of all Soviet children, he was a major historian and perhaps one of the most important historians of this society in the 20th century. He also was a Leninist. And I think that the short course demonstrates very clearly that uh, Stalin thought a lot about Marxism, Leninism. He was a true believer uh, and the Stalinism which he created was very, very intrinsic, was intrinsically related to Leninism. Um, it wasn't like uh, Khrushchev alleged in 1956, some sort of a deviation from the true path. Instead, what Stalin effectively does with Marxism is that he essentializes it into a couple of core principles. He offers us 
uh, vanguardism. He offers us a struggle with the opposition. He offers us uh, socialism in one country. Uh, and so what, what the, the short course, I think, does demonstrate, it resolves this question of whether there's continuity between Lenin and Stalin quite nicely. There definitely is continuity. It's a poorly edited sort of continuity, I guess. It's a, a schematic continuity, which doesn't read very easily and is hard to transmit to the mass level. It's not particularly mobilizational. But I think it demonstrates who Stalin is ideologically and resolves this question about whether he was Leninist or not. So do you expect this volume to change the historiography on Stalin? Because I certainly think the idea that he rejects and downplays uh, his role as you know the great leader is, is quite interesting and quite different from the normal narrative of Stalin we get, as are the, the mistakes that we've talked about, you know, not really having a good audience and you're not anticipating um, you know, the Second World War not being able to integrate the popular front because normally people look at Stalin as if he's got some sort of master plan for like global takeover. And Mm -hmm. I I think that this maybe changes that. Do you think so? I think so. I think it gives us a much more contingent point of view uh, uh, on the, on his sort of intellectual process. That's, that's, that's quite perceptive. Yeah. I like that idea. Everywhere that I, I've written probably five or six articles uh, on themes that I've teased out of this volume on 1917, on, cha- on Stalin's alterations to the views of, uh, to uh, interpretations of internationalism, uh, the national question, the purges, the personality cult. So I, I, I think I've, so I'm, I've been satisfied with uh, that sort of half dozen case studies that I've already done to suggest that this is indeed uh, quite a, an important piece of work when one is trying to understand ideology and and uh, um, the the politics of of uh, historical narrative in the Soviet Union. I think, though, one of the exciting things about this volume is that there's a ton left to do. Because if I've looked at uh, 1917 and proletarian internationalism and the purges and the personality cult, there are at least a dozen topics which I've never even thought to look at because it's a it's a primary source that's been published in in a critical edition form. So if one thinks about class, for instance, uh, Stalin certainly changes the way that class is represented in Soviet history. It's left to be written up by somebody else. Gender, nationality, youth, regionalism, foreign affairs, the entire pre-revolutionary period, he rewrites. And I, I, my interests have, have moved on. I'm, I'm not sure how many more articles that I will write on this subject, but the fact that uh, Zilinov and I have released the entire text in primary source form uh, that Yale University Press has allowed us to do this means that many people uh, can now take part in the analysis of this text, looking at bringing their own insights and their own backgrounds to the task and look at the way that this that, that many of these other themes of Soviet history were rewritten or transformed uh, in 1938. So since you're finished with the short course, you take that little breath, you're like, oh, thank God I'm done. <laughs> and then... The- my last question is, what is next for you? Is there another project? Are you taking a little breather? What? No, I'm a graphomaniac. Uh, the, so having written a couple of books on ideology and propaganda, I decided that uh, I'd like to work on something else. 
and so I've decided to shift my attention to the Leningrad affair, which is Stalin's last political purge. So I've switched away from ideology and propaganda to uh, the dynamics of Soviet repression. And this I chose is Zhdanov, Le- right? Exactly. This is well. It's just after Zhdanov's death. So it's it's 1949 to 1952. It's Stalin's last major political purge, and it's a purge which destroys the Leningrad party organization. And in so doing, it um, certainly it does a variety of structural things to the Soviet Union. It stymies reform. It, it leads to hypercentralization. More importantly, though, it claims the lives of Stalin's two appointed successors. Uh, Alexei Kuznetsov and Nikolai Voznesensky are both killed in this purge. It weakens others like Molotov, uh, Mikoyan, and Kasigan. And it ultimately allows uh, this um, motley uh, crew of uh, Khrushchev, Malenkov, and Beria to come to power in 1953 when Stalin dies. So it's really an important purge in the sense that it transforms the trajectory of the Soviet Union uh, and and sort of post-war Soviet history in the middle of the Cold War. I think that the transformative nature of the Leningrad affair has, has justified a study uh, for years. That study has been uh, stymied, though, by archival secrecy uh, and failure to declassify important uh, sorts of materials, especially high-level decision-making materials. But in 2015, I was lucky enough to uh, figure out uh, where the smoking gun is. And um, you mean what put, other folder and what other agency they exactly duplicated? right the holy grail I guess you could call it and so I put together a team of of Russian researchers and we've been trying first of all to gain access to this material uh, and then to process it in a way which will allow us to write the definitive account of this purge so I in the next couple of years we'll release a couple of volumes of of primary source uh, documents in Russian. And at the same time, we'll be writing a collective monograph on the purge itself. Uh, it'll probably be published in English first and then Russian second. Through the Yale so, series? So, yeah. Uh, that's, I'm afraid I think that the Yale series is, has run out of funding. That Annals of Communism series, I believe, is over. Uh, or maybe it will be renewed. But I think that the prospects for cl- uh, uh, immediate renewal are, are slim. Uh, but I, I expect that the finding a publisher won't be terribly difficult. Well, thank you very much, David, for being here and talking with us about your you. edited volume. This has been really animating and fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>